The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you all very much. And listen, I don't want to, I don't want to tempt fate because clearly lots of results are still coming in, and we're still only dealing with projections. But at this stage, it does look as though this One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate. It's Friday the 13th of December and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Boris Johnson's Conservative Party has won a comprehensive victory in the UK general election, giving him the sort of parliamentary majority which his party has not enjoyed since the heyday of Margaret Thatcher. Meanwhile, the Labour Party will have its lowest parliamentary representation since 1935. There have also been dramatic results in Northern Ireland, which for the first time in its almost 100-year history has not elected a unionist majority to Westminster. In a little while, we'll be hearing from political lecturer and pollster Kevin Cunningham and our political editor Pat Leahy will be joining us from Brussels. But first I'm joined by our London editor Dennis Staunton. Quite a night, Dennis. Indeed, an extraordinary night. And as you say, a really comprehensive and resounding victory for Boris Johnson. Um, were the polls right? Uh, the, 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 all that stuff about the, the, the thing tightening a bit in the last few days and the MR, final MRP projections, this whopping majority seems to be slightly outside those. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the polls were pretty consistent in terms of giving the Conservatives a sort of a, a 10-point lead. But some of them were tightening as uh, as the election day approach, approached. And the second MRP poll from YouGov, which had, which had a central prediction of uh, a majority of 28 seats, uh, even the, uh, you know, the furthest, the most optimistic from the Conservative point of view, uh, you know, limit of that was still, uh, you know, a narrower majority than what they actually Achieved. So certainly this was way up there at the highest end of expectations for the Conservatives. Uh, I was looking at the, the venerable veter- veteran uh, British pollster John Curtis on the BBC a couple of hours ago and uh, he was making the point that this is the culmination, the ultimate successful culmination of a two-election process that, uh, that two years ago in 2017, Theresa May attempted exactly the same strategy and failed to execute it. In other words, winning all those working class constituencies in the West Midlands and the North East and, and the North West, but that she did make some progress so that th- those seats came into view as, as legitimate targets this time around and this time they've hit the jackpot. Yeah, I think that's right. And actually, there are quite a lot of seats. If you look uh, at the northeast, if you look then the Midlands, places like uh, Nottinghamshire, if you look, for example, at Dennis Skinner's seat in Bolsover, he's been losing that seat for years. He just, you know, has uh, this was the time that he lost it. So you've seen his majority diminishing all the time. And particularly in the 2017 election, as you say, the Conservatives made a lot of progress, but didn't quite make it. And so some of those were there for the picking. Of course, what we don't know is... uh, how long they're going to be there for. Uh, you know, have these, you know, has Boris Johnson really entirely reshaped the political map of Britain? Or is this, uh, you know, a consequence of Brexit, 
antipathy towards Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson's particular appeal. Uh, and you know, will he be able to hold on to those in five years' time? Who knows? And in relation to that, what, what impact will that have on his political judgment um, in, with this comfortable majority over the next few years? You have a rather different uh, Conservative parliamentary party, not just because everybody signed up to Boris Johnson's deal, so there's there's less wiggle room for, for rebels. It's more difficult to be a rebel um, when your government has a, has a comfortable majority. But also they're representing all these seats which, you know, n- still manufacturing areas of Northern England. They're not going to be too keen necessarily on the, the Singapore by the Thames notion. No, and that's going to be a problem uh, for him. You know, he certainly will be able to get Brexit done insofar as, you know, on the 31st of January, Britain will leave the European Union. That's the end of it. There is no second referendum. Remain is over. It's gone. All hope is snuffed out from that point of view. And so so in that sense, Brexit will be delivered. But then he has to go, go into these negotiations about the future relationship with the European Union and also then to try to do trade deals elsewhere. And as you say, there will be no political appetite and there is already no political appetite in Britain for this kind of bonfire of the regulations that uh, you know that, that diverging from EU regulations would mean, and there certainly is no uh, appetite for the kind of deregulation that would be necessary in certain areas to get a meaningful trade deal with the United States under Donald Trump, and so he may find himself in a position where, uh, despite having a big majority and being able to negotiate with the European Union on uh, on the terms of his choice. Because he has said he doesn't want to have uh, a level playing field in terms of regulatory alignment with the European Union, because in a way he want, you know, he believes and the people around him believe that the, the only way Brexit can work economically is if you do diverge and that you have got a bit more regulatory freedom and you're a competitor in regulatory terms with the European Union. But uh, you know, he's, if he does that, he's going to have uh, less access to the European market and he's not going to be able to compensate for that with a big trade deal with somewhere like America where they're going to demand and, uh, you know, concessions that will be politically impossible. So one of the things that struck me last night, and in fact, over the course of the campaign, of course, we heard get Brexit done 10,000 times every day. But he, uh, Johnson was also at pains to keep reiterating this phrase, one nation, that he was a one nation conservative. And he was very much doing, doing that um, tonight as well. Um, what does one nation mean in that context? I think for him, what it means is that it's, uh, I think, two things. One is that, uh, the, you know, as he said to his uh, supporters uh, you know, earlier this morning, he said, you know, the, this is a dream that we've had for a long time, that the Conservatives would represent every part of the country. Now, they don't really represent Scotland all that much, but they certainly represent, you know, a lot of parts of England. And so it's partly that, that, uh, you know, it's, it's one nation in that kind of sense. But I think it's more to do with the fact that he's saying, he's signalling that he's moving away from austerity (laughs) and that he's, uh, you know, so that as well as getting Brexit done, the other things that he was promising were more money for the health service, more money for policing, more money for education. And so he's in in favour of a certain kind of state interventionism. He likes grand projects, big infrastructure projects. So I think that you will see a more active state than might be traditional under conservatism since Margaret Thatcher. And in that, so I think that that's the kind of thing he's trying 
trying to talk about of being a one nation conservative and so and in you know and probably in economic policy terms he will be something like that but obviously uh, rather different in terms of the uh, the approach to the future relationship with Europe in terms of the nations within the United Kingdom is Scotland going to be a big problem for him or is the fact that he has such a large majority is no matter what the sweeping gains which the SNP made which 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 they did make um they can ask for a referendum all they want but he can sit there and say you're not getting it he can, but the problem then would be that uh, they've got Scottish Parliament elections in 2021. And if the SNP uh, win there, uh, you know, then again, uh, and if the Scottish Parliament, for example, passes uh, a motion saying they want a referendum, if they do that now, and if then they get uh, a mandate in 2021... It will be quite difficult, I think, uh, politically for Westminster to defy the uh, wishes as expressed in an election of the people of Scotland to have another uh, referendum. And I think that, you know, he would have to, you know, uh, you know, as you say, he would have the numbers to say no. But I think he would have to be careful to avoid a kind of Catalonia-style standoff. Uh, between uh, you know Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom, and the other problem is that actually, if you you know if he does want to keep the United Kingdom together, having a standoff of that nature, especially after taking Scotland out of the United out of the European Union against the will of most of its people, I think that's really not the best way to encourage a sense of unity within the kingdoms of the United Kingdom. Hmm. Back to the largest kingdom in the United Kingdom the, the, and where the Labour Party got most of the seats that it did get in this election. Uh, this is an absolutely disastrous result for the Labour Party. People were making comparisons in the early part of the night with 1983 when Michael Foote crashed and burned um, and Margaret Thatcher got a huge majority. But This is worse than 1983. 1935 was the last time they had this few number of seats in the House of Commons. Yeah, it's a disaster. And it's a disaster that can be left uh, squarely at the door of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, There's no question but that Brexit was a factor in many parts of the country uh, when it came to to former Labour voters turning to the Conservatives. But the thing you heard more than anything else on the doorstep and from canvassers was that Jeremy Corbyn was a big problem, that voters did not want him to be in Downing Street. And uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, some of his supporters... Uh, in the last few hours have been suggesting it's just about Brexit. It clearly isn't. Uh, it's not because, in fact, you know, even if you look at the polling, a lot of the policies, the left-wing policies, were actually uh, quite popular, but he was not. And so I think that what you're going to find now as he prepares to step down, uh, he hasn't given a timetable for doing that, but he will have to do it fairly quickly, uh, is that the, the leadership contest to succeed him will really be a struggle, not just an ideological one for the future of the Labour Party, but also over the culture of the party, because a big problem, I think, was the culture of the people around Jeremy Corbyn. And that's something which left a lot of his MPs very unhappy. And that's something which might have to change. What what do you mean by the culture? What I mean was the, is that they were very defensive. They were, uh, you know, they they uh, essentially saw uh, many of their own MPs as being uh, enemies of the leadership. They had a project to take over uh, the uh, the Labour Party to take it over, in, you know, in each of its constituent parts, from the membership, the constituency Labour parties, the National Executive Council, and really the main project of Corbynism, or the prior, the first one, was actually control of the Labour. 
Labour Party. And I think what you saw, for example, in the response to complaints about anti-Semitism was that uh, the response was distorted by the fact that the people around Jeremy Corbyn viewed this uh, through the prism of a threat to uh, his leadership and the stability of his leadership. And so they weren't, they were kind of blinded to uh, what was going on in terms of individual instances of, uh, of what was being done to people. And they just really viewed it all in terms of all of this. So there, it was a secretive culture and it was, uh, it was one which was, uh, you know, uh, quite intimidating for those who were on the outside. And I think that's something that's definitely going to change within the next uh, few months. And listening to that, that sounds like we might anticipate a very bitter leadership battle in the Labour Party. Yeah, I think I think it probably will be. I don't think that you're going to have uh, you know a, a huge ideological range. So I don't think, for example, that a Blairite. Uh, candidate or, you know, that kind of uh, centrist candidate is going to win, uh, you know, the leadership. I think you're talking about various shades of the left, from the soft left, people like um, Keir Starmer, Angela Rayner, uh, who would be on the soft left of the party, uh, over to uh, to more radical or more Corbynite figures like, say, Rebecca, Rebecca Long-Bailey. Uh, but I don't think that you're going to have sort of a, a return of the you know, the, the, the sort of thinking around, you know, Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, all of that. I think that's over. Uh, but I think it will be, uh, nonetheless, a bitter, a bitter fight for, uh, for the soul of the party. Plus, there are some deeply, I suppose, philosophical questions, aren't there, about who the party represents now and whether it can get back that working class vote, which I think actually now a majority of working class voters um, in, in the United Kingdom are, are a greater number vote for the Conservative Party than vote for Labour, which is a, a huge problem for them. And then if you add to that the fact that we know that when these huge landslide victories occur, particularly in the UK in 1983, as I mentioned, and when Labour won in 1997, it's a sort of it's a two stage or even a three stage process for the defeat party to get back within reaching distance of power. It can be. Uh, and I think also what you're seeing is something that's reflected elsewhere in Europe with social democratic parties, parties of the centre-left, that uh, many of them have lost a lot of the support among their traditional uh, industrial base and their support is more concentrated in the cities, more among younger people, uh, among ethnic minorities, among the better educated. And I think before we write off the Labour Party, it is important to note that they do remain the strongest party among the young. And uh, and you know and this government that has been elected, this Conservative government, it is not in tune with the values of younger people in Britain. And the party that saw the biggest percentage increase in its vote was the Green Party, and uh, they uh, got eight hundred and fifty thousand votes, which is a kind of a sixty percent increase. They're still obviously a very small party, but nonetheless, younger people have different priorities to the priorities of the Conservative Party, and so I think if uh, you know, the, so the Labour Party is, is going to face the kind of challenges that social democratic parties elsewhere are facing. You see uh, a leadership change in the social democratic party in Germany in the last uh, few days. And I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's essentially the same problem that's being dealt with elsewhere. Uh, finally, Dennis, I mean, clearly Brexit is not done. There's still plenty of negotiations to uh, to take place, perhaps over years and, and, and not just months, depending on how it all turns out. But this has been an incredibly intense and heated period in British politics the last year, year and a half or so, um, perhaps the most dramatic since since the Second World War, some, some would say. Do you think we've now come to the end of that period? Are we entering a, a, a moment of greater calm to some extent? I think so, because 
Actually, uh, Brexit means Britain leaving the European Union. Britain will leave the European Union at the end of January. That is getting Brexit done. The next stage is a negotiation about the future relationship with the European Union. And I think that uh, Boris Johnson is likely to declare victory in terms of uh, leaving the European Union and to uh, and, and really to treat the future negotiation as if it is something which is happening after... Uh, uh, Brexit rather than a, a second stage of Brexit, which is the way people have been talking about it to some extent now. I think things also will feel very different here once Brexit has happened. I think that uh, we might uh, we, we would be unwise to underestimate the emotional charge of it, both for Brexiteers but also actually for uh, Remainers. The disappointment that uh, those people who wanted to remain in the European Union are going to feel when it actually happens and that it becomes clear to them that not only is Britain leaving, but it's probably never going back and that the Remain movement would have to become a rejoin movement. And that's a much uh, steeper hill to climb. Indeed it is. Dennis, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. And I will lead the party during that period to ensure that discussion takes place and we move on into the future. And that was Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, speaking in London last night. I am joined by Kevin Cunningham, a political lecturer, a pollster, and also, Kevin, I think relevantly... Uh, at this point, uh, you worked with the UK Labour Party when it, when it was being led by Ed Miliband. Yes, um, and a bit of Jeremy, and a bit of Jeremy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you make of what he had to say there? Um, I think it's a presumption that he still has some political capital, which I think is incorrect. I think he'll find that he has no political capital within the party, and anything he touches will not exactly turn to gold. It will be uh, bad. So it, you know, if he thinks he's going to have some leadership right now. I think that's daft, to be honest with you. I, I assume part of this is trying to uh, set the narrative, which there's a, clearly a massive divide in the Labour Party about whether this is Corbyn or Brexit. And you saw a lot of the kind of Labour front benches coming out talking about, oh, this is Brexit, nothing to do with the Corbyn project. Because they're thinking about the, the next leader. And, and their chosen person probably would be Rebecca Long-Bailey, who would be kind of in that particular uh, grouping. And uh, they're probably trying to help that. And I actually think him hanging on will probably damage her chances because she can't kind of move against him uh, in any particular manner. One of the other things about this is elections are an enormously educational experience for the members and followers of a particular leader. I remember um, the 2015 election when coming into that, lots of people who had experienced poor elections previously in 2010 were kind of sceptical of uh, Ed Miliband after the 2015 election. Anyone who'd experienced that were v was very sceptical of Jeremy Corbyn. It's it's kind of, it, it creates this thing, whereas I, th I, I think the membership will probably turn very quickly against Jeremy. Now, Dennis Staunton earlier was talking not just about Jeremy Corbyn, although a lot of this stuff seemed to focus on his personality and what he was seen to what he was seen to represent, but also the kind of coterie around him um, and their attempts to control what was going on in the party. And that, to me, sounded like there'd be a bit of a battle for the heart and soul of the Labour Party going on there. Yeah, I mean, the, there 
will be a leadership election and, and that leadership election will define who is at the heart of the Labour Party. I mean, when, when Jeremy's guys came in, they gradually over time took over head office. Um, lots of, uh, I think I was chatting to a former colleague of mine the other day and he was saying that there was only three left who had been there since 2010 and they were all leaving basically. So uh, the entire staff now of the Labour Party has never experienced like even a, a relatively poor uh, general election results. So um, the next leader will come in, they'll change things, they'll have their own leadership team and I think from that it will move into a very different place. It's dependent on the membership obviously because the membership will select the next leader and I'm I'm sure they'll try to rig things within the membership through whatever control they still have of the NEC, the National Executive Committee which the, they can the, use. And the unions have a big part to play don't they? The unions... You can depend on, yeah, well, I mean, the unions do have a part to play, all right. Uh, they certainly have um, votes on the National Executive uh, Committee. And, uh, yeah, um, you know, um, but they're going to be weakened. In in the context of this loss, I think there will be the people who supported Jeremy and were really strong about it will, you know, suddenly find themselves, you know, being a bit quieter because, you know, in nat- naturally, you know, there's just going to be this natural regression, I guess, you know. What does it say about the Labour Party that it can't command um, a support in constituencies which have been Labour since those constituencies were first established? Uh, since the First World War, uh, these constituencies have voted Labour and now they're voting Tory. Yeah, they, I mean, uh, looking at some of these constituencies, personally, it's, it's very sad to see them going Tory. At the same time, um, some of these trends existed even before Brexit. Um I think a, a, a general point about this is how social class, social grade, uh, occupational status, which was the fundamental basis of politics in the UK, is no longer as important. You know, if you have a job that involves manual labour as opposed to uh, non-manual labour, it, it, it doesn't really have as much of an influence on what party you support. And there's just this gradual erosion even before Brexit in in relation to this connection between parties and and this kind of class um, support. Um, So I I think that's important to recognise. I think uh, the Labour Party have been doing better and better among younger voters because in some sense they're the people that are finding that their politics are more aligned with left-wing politics, the idea of taxing wealth. You know, when uh, the kind of the same thing is going on in the UK that is going on in Ireland in relation to the proportion of people owning houses and the uh, that generational divide of wealth and income. Um, so it's always going to be the case that if the Labour Party are going to find more support among younger voters and when younger voters are, are migrating from the large towns into the big cities. So it used to be the case, obviously, that people would migrate from rural areas into towns and cities. Now they're moving from the towns to the large cities and... That, that obviously ensures that the ge- geography of the Labour vote is much more concentrated in the cities. And you can see, I had figures there where the large towns, uh, the Labour Party are now behind by 44% to 38%. And the urban areas, in spite of in the cities, even in this election result, Labour are ahead 50 to 30, you know, winning places like Putney and that sort of thing. You know? So that's, I mean, that's a demographic explanation. There's also a sort of, a, I suppose, a a political explanation, which is that the power of that social democratic argument, not just in the UK, but in countries across Europe, um, has been weakened by, by by these kind of demographic and social changes. I saw the former leader of the Scottish Labour Party, I think, last night.
night talking about how nationalism um, had eaten away at the core Labour vote, both in Scotland and in England. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a sense that nationalism is certainly more important, a more important identity than class identity. Um, it's the er- the areas that shifted from uh, Labour to the Tories were the areas that had the largest number of Labour Leave voters, the largest number of people with lower levels of education. There's other aspects of it as well that are kind of uh, driving this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and nationalism is, uh, as someone saw, I saw someone say last night, it's some it's some drug. You know, um, you can see how it galvanises people behind something when there's kind of an opposition that's easily defined and, and kind of easily explained to people. Um, I want to ask you something, but I kind of asked Dennis this as well, but I'd be interested in your view, which is that um, we've seen in previous landslide elections, 1983 and 1987, for example, that when a party gets a real kicking, particularly in a first-past-the-post system, that it's really difficult to get back yeah. really seriously into contention. It's a two-election or, or three-election process to win those seats, to turn all that around and to start winning those seats back. Yeah, so I think that, well, obviously, I think... Boris Johnson is going to be in until 2024. The next 2024 election, I think they have a huge advantage. Uh, one of the interesting things that I've seen in British politics is the power of what's called first-term incumbency. That's, you know, when someone is an incumbent, they've won a seat for the first time, they'll typically win it the next time. When a seat has kind of shifted from a long time being one way, I mean, you could see it with uh, Canterbury this time uh, kind of held on uh, relatively strongly. Um, compared to other constituencies, Labour won Canterbury, had never won Canterbury until the last general election and hung on. I think a lot of these constituencies will find themselves moving even further rapidly in the, in the Tory direction. Because in the last election, places like Ashfield barely hung on, you know, uh, it, and it, it's, it's almost like there, there was kind of a residual Labour vote that was, that was there because the place was always Labour. Now they'll find that they'll... they'll there'll be uh, a very strong Tory vote, I think, in, in a lot of these places. So I, I think it'll be very hard to turn those Labour seats around. I think the Labour target constituencies in the next election will probably not be the so-called Labour heartlands, but actually be different constituencies with a um, larger number of uh, younger people. There will probably have to be some sort of uh, more formal pact perhaps, between the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats um, in relation to different parts of the United Kingdom. I think one of the massive limitations, people were talking about tactical voting, which evidently did not work at all because uh, lots of people have very little uh, understanding of which vote, which party is in second place, or indeed the idea of going around telling people to vote tactically isn't exactly, you know, a very mo- motivating, hopeful thing to do. There's stats that show that it only affects a f- quite a small percentage of the electorate in any constituency, even if it's successful. Yeah, you're, you're kind of forcing a narrative on, on people. Um but uh, you can see what happens when a party has concentrated geographical support as the SNP have in Scotland, you know, and the Liberal Democrats' natural heartlands is the southwest and southeast of England and the Labour Party's natural heartlands is the north of England. And they can build their own sort of, you know, if we're going to say that nationalism is very important, they could potentially build their own narrative about the relative importance of those areas. Certainly the north of England, uh, there's, there's an appetite for it. And within that, now obviously the party line from Labour frontbenchers last night was that it was all about Brexit, it wasn't about Jeremy Corbyn, but, you know, let's leave that aside. We've talked about that already. But 
Dennis Staunton was suggesting that, you know, it's quite likely that the the overall, the Brexit temperature, to put it that way, is now going to diminish quite a lot. You know, the UK will leave the European Union on the 31st of January. Mm. You know, the further processes will happen, but they won't necessarily be dominating the front pages and the main item on every on every news bulletin over the next year or two years or something. And both in relation to those southwestern parts of England, which were traditional liberal Democrat heartlands, but which did vote for Brexit for the most yeah. part, and certainly the, the northern heartlands, which definitely voted for Brexit. If Brexit comes off the table a bit, does that start offering an opportunity, presumably first at local elections and before you get to parliamentary elections? Um, there's two things there uh, one is I think Brexit was more of a catalyst for the change rather than a direct aspect of this there's other reasons why these people were kind of drifting towards the Conservative Party and I think in the absence of Brexit they'll probably stay there I think uh someone once called UKIP as a gateway drug to the Tories from the Labour Party. You know, it was kind of... And, and UKIP support emerged really before Brexit was really an issue. In the last... In the 2017 general election, the proportion of people saying uh, the European Union membership was a very important issue was around 20-25%. In Around this time of this election, it was around 60%. Obviously, so it was much more important. But, you know, in 2015, it was like 2 or 3% thought it was important. And the same dynamics were... were already happening in that particular election as well. Um, so I think it will be more difficult. Obviously in uh, local elections or various midterm elections the government tends to do poorly and so where will Labour kind of recover? Maybe they'll recover in these areas if the if the Tories, I think more importantly, don't um, have policies that help these areas that really make sure that these areas are um, improving uh, who knows? I mean, there's plenty of areas like Clacton, which is now the safest Tory seat, which is uh, economically uh, really bad. And uh, in fact, you could see that one of the biggest swings to the Tories in this election was uh, in places which had the highest uh, amounts of deprivation in the UK, which is bizarre because the Tories have been in government for nine or ten years. So they've managed to kind of flip things around, present themselves... Uh, you know, nine years in government as 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 change, which is interesting. I think you know, which is I- I- extremely unusual. You know, post the nineteen ninety seven wave for Labour, their vote gradually decreased over succeeding elections. Albeit they managed to remain in power. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, on the crest of a of an economic boom in nineteen eighty seven, did well, and then the party, you know, Conservative Party, hung on by its fingernails for a further eight or nine years. But it was by its fingernails. Here is a Tory government that's nine years uh, in number ten. And they have this crushing victory. Yeah, and the economy hasn't performed relatively well. I think one of the big mistakes of the Labour Party in this period was not... was I, I think the first step that the party should have done was to emphasise the issue of Remain, take its position as Remain, but then move from there onto an economic narrative to say that the Tories were acting recklessly with the economy around this Remain issue, try to present themselves as being more economically competent. I think that's always really, really important. One of the big problems was obviously the manifesto, which just basically told everyone what people thought about the Labour Party and the Corbyn project was that it was just economically uh, profligate. You know, it wasn't very good at holding on to this money. And, and, you know, in that narrative, in that context, uh, the older voters in particular are always going to hang on with the Tories. Kevin, it's been a long night. Thanks very much for coming in. And we will get Brexit done on time by the 31st of January. No ifs, no buts, no maybes.
leaving the European Union as one United Kingdom, taking back control of our laws, borders, money, our trade, immigration system, delivering on the democratic mandate of the people. Pat Leahy, you're in Brussels because of an EU summit uh, on. Is there general rejoicing that there's some clarity out of the UK election? I think rejoicing would be uh, rather too strong a word, Hugh. I think relief possibly is uh, would be a more accurate summary of what we have here now. EU leaders were all up late watching this last night, of course, and the post-summit dinner dragged on. Uh, some objections to the from the polls over the climate change plan, but uh, no doubt where their attention was, it was focused in focused on London and on those results that were coming in from all over the UK. Now, the leaders are just coming in here for the today's session of the summit. They'll be trickling in over the next hour or so. So we don't really have on the record responses from the leaders yet, but very much the sense around the place last night here and again this morning where the press centre is just beginning to fill up is that this for the EU will be the most welcome of the likely results, I think, while no one relishes the fact that Boris Johnson has won such a triumphant victory on the back of Brexit. At the same time, it gives him the political capacity to get Brexit done. I'm sorry for using that term, but uh, it seems opposite on the morning that's in it. And the real fear of EU leaders before the result was announced last night, I think, is that it was going to be inconclusive, that you were looking at a possible hung parliament, and that in turn that the EU was looking at yet another year of Brexit uncertainty of an inability to move forward. That's very clearly not the case now. The UK will leave on the 31st and the talks will move on to the the, the trade negotiation phase. So I, I, I think the overwhelming response here is probably one of resigned relief. There has been some debate already about whether the sheer size of Boris Johnson's new majority um, gives him both leeway and political capital to do whatever he wants, although there seems to be some disagreement about what he actually does want when it comes to the, the, the trade negotiations which are now underway. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's not surprising that there is confusion as to where Boris Johnson's true intentions about Brexit lie because he has said so many contradictory things to so many different audiences about it. But, you know, politics is at its heart a numbers game. And the numbers give Boris Johnson, as you say, capital. He now has momentum. He can do the sort of Brexit, whatever that is, that he wants. And the expectation, I think in Dublin anyway, is that... Boris Johnson's inclinations lean towards a softer Brexit simply because that is easier uh, for him to do. And if you think about it, he is no longer beholden to the DUP. He is no longer beholden to the ERG within his party. I think he is more likely to be influenced now by traditional Tory centres of power such as the city and the business lobby and that and they will want a softer 
Brexit. I think he will have to leave the single market and the customs union, but I suspect the direction of travel will be as close as makes no difference, or the eventual destination will be as close as makes no difference uh, to those uh, to those institutions. Uh, just turning to Northern Ireland, because the results in Northern Ireland were very interesting, Pat, and obviously there are negotiations going on or due to take place about reinstating the executive and the assembly in, in Northern Ireland. But, you know, Sinn Féin won a seat from the DUP in North Belfast. The SDLP took a DUP seat in South Belfast. The Alliance took Sylvia Herman's seat in North Down, where a lot of people thought the DUP was going to was going to take that seat. And then in, in, in foil, the SDLP won back that seat from Sinn Féin. The overall effect of that is that for the first time, I think, in the history of Northern Ireland, um, unionists are in a minority in terms of the MPs elected to Westminster, which has a kind of a symbolic significance. But presumably the, the, the results also have some impact on the way the different parties might think about getting the Assembly back up and running. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the results from Northern Ireland are you're pretty significant, pretty historic minority of unionist representatives as you say an immediate political blow for the DUP certainly and there will be fallout from that. You've got to think that Arlene Foster's days as leader may be numbered. There's the uh, there's the report of the Cash for Ash inquiry hovering in the middle distance as well and I think there is there will be a sort of a not just a a, a kind of political fallout but sort of psychological fallout for the DUP all of which may make it a little bit more difficult to get the institutions up and running but at the same time the DUP as we discussed uh, in in our, our live podcast a couple of weeks ago is interested in power and is interested in the fruits of power and the application of power so once it I, I think steadies itself after this result. The argument for going back into the institutions will be strong simply because the party has to do something. It's out of the loop in Westminster now and uh, and will be for the foreseeable future. So uh, y- you've got to think that the push for the institutions, the way is sort of cleared for it. Now, I think there will be, uh, I think there will be an attempt to do that next week. Uh, that may be a little early for the DUP. A lot depends on the whether Julian Smith is reappointed as Northern Secretary. I think that is probably likely, but who knows what comes out of London in the next couple of days. But certainly the view in Dublin, as I understand it, in the Department of Foreign Affairs, is that if Julian Smith is reappointed, then himself and Simon Coveney will will make an effort to bring the parties together as early as next Monday, whether the DUP is in a fit state to make long-term decisions before Christmas. I think we'll have to wait and see. Pat, one last question, and it's the obligatory question on this podcast. Do the events of last night make an election here in Ireland uh, an early election more likely? I think they certainly clear the way for it if that's what Leo Varadkar wants to do. It's pretty clear now on the basis of these results that the UK will leave the EU on the 31st of January. And therefore, you know, Micheál Martin's guarantee to keep this government going runs out on that date. So any time after January 31st, we are in election territory. And the question around Fine Gael, and this has been bouncing around for the last week, and we've discussed it ourselves, is whether... Leo Varadkar wants to preempt be preempt that election by effectively not bringing the doll back in January, or at least when it comes back, then 
announcing he will seek a dissolution and going to the park looking for a, a, a mid-February election immediately in the wake of Brexit. And Brexit is one of the political things that this government has going for very high approval ratings for the government's handling of Brexit in the polls. And we've seen in the past that when there are big Brexit events that the government is seen to have handled well, it has a direct impact on their opinion poll, uh, on their opinion poll rating, albeit that that effect has often proved to be fleeting. So that's the big decision that Leo Varadkar has to make, uh, whether he wants to go in February or whether he wants to take his chances and perhaps be brought down by a motion of no confidence in, in, uh, in February. But as we were saying the other day on the podcast, I think that there may be a third possibility, and that is that, you know, you look at the independents, you see, do they really want to bring down this government and cause a February election when one could be arranged or agreed for late April or for May? I think that's, again, one of the options that Leo Varadkar will have to consider over his, uh, over his Christmas turkey. The short, uh, the short answer, uh, after, after already giving you a very long one, is that I think it does clear the way for an election, but I'm not certain that it will happen. There will certainly be voices in Leo Varadkar's ear, and I heard some of them last night saying, now is the time to go, he's got to show boldness. The other, uh, other voices will be urging caution on him, saying, why have an election in February if you can arrange to have one uh, in, uh, in May? So I think a lot of hard thinking and a lot of big decisions, one big decision in particular awaits a Taoiseach over Christmas. We always expect both a long and a short answer from you, Pat. Listen, thanks very much indeed for joining us. And that is it for today's show. Uh, thanks to Pat. Thanks also to Dennis and to, to Kevin for joining us earlier. Uh, thanks to our producers, Suzanne and Declan. And remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever the hell your preferred podcast provider might be. Uh, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com and I'm usually hanging out on Twitter so you can get me there too. Until the next time, talk to you soon.